welcome our listeners to our first podcast today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. It's our first podcast in a series of 100 at least, and we're so happy today when I said that I'd do my first podcast. The guy that I really wanted, a guy that I've known for over 10 years and we've been friends, is the great Paul. And what I do with Paul is I add the word downtown. I count to 10 Mississippi and I add the word downtown. He's a big Green Bay Packer fan, born in Terrytown, New York, moved to Wisconsin when he was three years old. We'll get into that. And I'm so happy to have Paul downtown Brown with us today. So, Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Mayhall. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here on the first podcast with Small Business Horsepower. I think it's an honor and I appreciate the the comments and uh, look forward to discussing more with you today. Paul, let's go back a little bit in time. You were born in Terrytown and then, of course, you moved out to Wisconsin. And give me that Midwest feel. We'll relate that to how it relates to small business, but give me that feel of uh, growing up in Wisconsin. Well, yeah, I don't remember much of the the, the east coast of Terrytown because I left there at three years old, but uh, did grow up and and lived in the uh, heart of the Midwest, the power of the Packers, right outside of Green Bay of about an hour and a half Midwest in a small town called Port Edward, based on the uh, Wisconsin River alongside many paper companies that my father was a part of. So we, we, I grew up watching the sales. Well, at the time, he was a sales manager out in Cherrytown, uh, but then became an executive vice president at a very young age, at 35. So I learned a lot from my father uh, about business, sales. He had uh, many people from different executives across the enterprise of this lovely United States of America. And he brought over many people, presidents of uh, 3M Company to, to Xerox. So I was exposed at a very young age to business executives. I thought that was just the norm to kind of hang with presidents and vice presidents because they were always over at our house. We were entertaining. And uh, as a kid, Growing up, I learned a lot just, uh, I guess, from a social interaction at a very young age to be able to be exposed to that. Felt very privileged, enjoyed many things, and we'll get into more as far as some of the things that I got involved with in good old Wisconsin. But uh, that kind of gives you a quick snapshot of the area and the exposure to my father and his business executives that he, he dealt with over the years. Well, that's kind of interesting. I just, just listening to you, I was thinking, uh, Paul, do you, um, knowing that he worked for a company, it seems like his whole life, which was kind of commonplace in those days because you had people that worked basically forever right, for one company, right? And uh, those things don't really happen today. But let me give you a little background first on Paul there. Paul works for a Fortune 100 company. Him and I have dealt with each other for over 10 years. And Paul's specialty is really working with consumables, meaning uh, abrasives, tapes, uh, respirators, all kinds of different products in various trades, whether it be aerospace, marine. So he works with material that glues together an aircraft or holds together ships. And I've worked with him on various ventures within his company over the last 10 years. And that's really how I got to know Paul. 
did you anticipate yourself striding out on your own or you were very happy with what your dad was doing and how he worked for a company? Well, as a young whippersnapper that loves sports, there was two sports that I thought I was going to be professional of. You know, of course, as a young guy, you're thinking, no, I don't want to be like dad. I don't want to work for a company for 35 years. I want to play while I work. So what I wanted to do is I, I, I played golf at a very young age, at the age of 13. And essentially what happened was I got uh, in a tournament at a young age and I won a Class C tournament that year. And then there was a Class and I jumped up because I'd won it dominantly. So I then jumped up to a Class A tournament. And I won that tournament the same year and was put into Golf Digest magazine with Johnny Miller, one of my favorite golfers of all time. And he was on the cover and I was put as one of the most approved golfers in the central Wisconsin area, actually for the state of Wisconsin. I thought I was going to be a professional golfer and go to PGA school and, and do that kind of route. So that was my first dream of, you know, an entrepreneurial or not, but you know, sporting type career. Also, baseball was another big one for me. I was a pitcher in Little League and had a bunch of no hitters. I uh, got put in the, our local Daily Tribune and was written up about my uh, fastball and that none of the kids could hit it. So, you know, then I had aspirations in baseball as well. But I think Golf was a little bit longer term career. Baseball got uh, a little more challenging as you hit the majors and it's a very difficult sport to get to that level. Anyway, that I pursued that, you know, in the, in the eyes of a young fella in the Midwest, I was thinking more sports long term. And then I had a knack for people. I had a natural people skill. Uh, as far as communication because of the upbringing with my father, like I was speaking to the exposure to all these business people and cocktail hour parties and, and all these different things that I was exposed to at a very young age. And even, even was flown out to Xerox Corporation. But one thing that I thought was uh, very interesting is my father took me on a private jet to meet some customers out in upstate New York, more so because it was by Niagara Falls. And you probably could speak to it better than me. But at the end of the day, we got the Xerox corporate office. And I'll never forget the time I walked in with my father. I'm just this young kid kind of, you know, holding my dad's briefcase. And we're walking into this office. And the first thing the lady says is, oh, my gosh, Harry Brown is here. That was my father, Harry. And so all these people came up and, and were treating my dad, you know, I thought like royalty. And I'm thinking I was confused. I, I said to my dad, wait a minute, dad, I thought Xerox is your customer. They're acting like you're the customer. And he goes, uh, well, son, I have a good relationship, not only with the president of this company, but also the all the way to the receptionist and really to all the way to the janitor of the, of the company, because you never know when that janitor could be the president of the company. And I never forgot that because, you know, when you treat people with dignity and honesty, no matter what level of their title, you never know where they're going to be in life. You never know if they're going to run the next Amazon or Home Depot or what have you. And so you treat people with respect. And I was just taken away by my father's ability to relate to people and how much they enjoyed seeing him when he walked in the door versus, you know, I'm sure if you're coming in as a sales guy, generally people are kind of closed minded and what do you got? What are you trying to sell me type attitude? But I didn't get that with my father and it was a big life lesson. 
Uh, that's a great point. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, for those of our listeners that are in sales, I'll tell you, there's no better salesperson in the market today than Paul Brown. I mean, he has worked in so many industries for his one company. I'm talking, as I mentioned before, shipbuilding, aerospace, and I call him the king of shipbuilding. I mean, he really has worked in a lot of industries. He is the king. Now, I'm not going to, should I mention to our listeners that the vice president of one of those shipbuilding industries called you a snake oil salesman, Paul? No, I think that probably wouldn't be good. I think there's, you know, you learn, Mayhole, as we, we talk about the snake oil thing, and people can give you kind of get mixed up with some good apples, and then you get some bad apples in companies. And sometimes the bad apples don't look past their own nose. So you're not going to please everyone. But at the end of the day, if your intention is always to go out to please the customer, with the attitude of gratitude, and you're going to help them, and you're going to find a solution for them, all the snake oil sales stuff goes away because they really do see through that. And they say, you know, you did bring value. You did what you said you're going to do. You followed through with you said what you're going to do, and you did it. We don't care about what other people think of you. We think you are a great value and asset. And by the way, the other vice president that you didn't mention said that to me more so than the guy that was joking around about the snake oil salesman because he heard it from the bad apple in the organization. But the other vice president, including the directors, all to this day talk about what value and the things that was brought. And it wasn't just me. It was a team of people. But I think it was the relationship, the established relationship and the consistency over, like you said, Mayhole, about a decade of calling on the, uh, in this case, the shipbuilding industry. Paul, when I look at you working for this Fortune 100 company, and I've worked with you on the other side as an owner of a small business, I have to say, how do you, as a person that works for a Fortune 100 company, knows what that big ship, that big company's looking for? How do you relate and coach a small company that's partnering with you, whether it's at a shipbuilding account or an aerospace account? Because you, in one way, understand the limitation of a small business in terms of resources, in terms of people. But at the same time, you understand what they can do as opposed to maybe what a big company can do. What's the small business? What's the one thing in your mind that a small business could bring to your customer base that a big company that you work for, a Fortune 100 company, cannot bring? Well, I think there's one word, Mayo, that comes to mind. Uh, you know, I think what happens is we complicate our, whether it's a small or a big business, but let's face it, all of it comes down to relationships. And I think the audience here would agree that relationships are king because if, if you have trust with your people and your organization, including all the way to your customers, what happens is, is they look to you as a, as a relevant source of uh, supply that they need and they know you're going to do what you say you're going to do because they trust you. And I think a lot of it, if you look back at the success of your own company, Mayhole, and over the years, and we can get into some of that down the road, but I think at the end of the day, you had to build some way, somehow, through all the mirage of all the different things that you do as a small business owner, is you had to create a sense of trust with somebody to buy something from you. 
And I think that that's the key, no matter if you're a big or a small company. Now, big companies, you can get that brand recognition. You can get people to accept your calls maybe a little faster because they recognize the brand. But you can create your own brand. And a small business creates that same identity by creating trust. And if you get trust with your clients, they're going to come to you and they like you. And then if you have a team of people that you train with the same kind of integrity and and value that you're going to bring to the customer eventually leads to sales and it eventually leads to success. And we can get into more details from a small, what's the competitive advantage, da-da-da-da-da. But well, that's what I want to get to, Paul. What I'm asking you here is, and I, I know what you're on to, you create that trust, but I'm really trying to get it like, what's that one thing in your mind that just sticks out at you that a small business could bring that a big company can't bring to the table? Like, what's the one thing that grabs you? One thing that would grab me is uh, versatility and getting things done immediately. You know, where you get into some of the bigger companies and you get a lot of bureaucracy. If you wanted to, say, add a new SKU or, or you wanted to bring in something that was uh, outside of the norm, big company has to go through 16 different forms, send it through an SAP category, then figure it out if they're going to get it to the marketer, and then the marketer's got to test it. You know, the small company can go, give me the price now, I need it today, and by the way, if I want to reduce that price, can I take it down 10%? Yeah, go ahead, and you offer it right there on the spot. You have the versatility and the limberness to move quicker to actionable items for your customers faster than I think big companies can respond to, just from the bureaucracy of the different sizes and so forth. So that, that would stick out quick. And customers like that because they want answers today. They don't want them yesterday. They don't want them the next day. They, they want it right now. They want it right now. Paul, when I look at back to this uh, small business thing here, is one of the things that we've been thinking about, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is how is today's marketplace as your career has developed, uh, not that you're an old man, I'm not saying that, but 30, 30 plus years in the business, Paul, how is selling today in the marketplace different than it was, let's say, 5, 10, even 15 years ago with all of this? I'll give you a prime example that I'd like you to answer. I mean, we've worked on projects where we've gone into customers, right? We've engineered a product and we've saved a customer. They're paying, you know, let's say $100 for whatever product they're buying. And I bring you or you bring me into an account and we cut that cost 20%. Not only cut the cost, but our product may last seven times longer. And now you have a buyer, Paul, that I see goes on internet and checks that price and someone who's not spending the time going into that account and engineering, but just selling online, Paul, they're going to quote it very tight with less overhead because they haven't even sent someone there and a buyer is going to come online and check that. And and after this COVID-19, what I see is everyone's working from home and I think in the future, we're going to have to sort this out because I think more and more people are going to be working and buying. Your buyers are going to be at home. So back to the question for you is how do you see it 10 years, five years ago? And even just what's going on right now, like how do you see selling in the marketplace? Well, I see myself retired. Uh, no, just kidding. For those that are still working, I would have to say, I think I'll be praying for you. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
I think uh, Mayhall, it's, it's an interesting question, and it is a competitive uh, landscape out there. When you get the Amazons of the world, the big boys that are coming online, and, and you and I are both, even though we can say, uh, geez, they're ruining the small business guy, we order right after we say that on Amazon and get what we need because we don't want to go shopping for it anymore with COVID-19. So it is a different landscape, but I think the basics of, especially industrial, it depends on the market. Now, if you're into the businesses that you and I have worked on, I think there's too much technical that's needed. There's too many more questions. You can't just order it online and just go. I think the uh, process engineers and people we deal with are going to want to engage with people still. Uh, I think there is markets that are going to be in jeopardy with uh, more of a retail mindset that's service-oriented is going to be impacted by it even more. But I think the industrial side, I don't see that being in jeopardy, at least for the next 10 years, because there's still a need. There's still a need for talking to people, engaging in processes, making sure you pick the right products. And then to your point, after you pick the product, I think the key to the success with an organization, and I've been that in the shipyard business that you mentioned earlier in the show here, that it really, you got to keep a lot of people in the loop on the protocol because you talk about procurement, which I know that's our purchasing people. For those that don't know about what does that mean, that's those are buyers, people that are motivated to basically set up the best, cheapest uh, price at the best value, and they get rewarded by reducing costs for their company. But I would say that's a one-legged stool, and there's always four legs to a good solid stool. And I think you've got to be at different levels of the organization to succeed. And what I mean by that is one of the legs is you've got to be at, at a higher level, like a manager-director level connection. And then the next leg is the engineering leg. And then the next leg could be your production people, people that are on the floor, people that are looking at your product. And then the last leg is procurement and buying. And unfortunately, for some service businesses, that's where they spend 90% of their time. The unfortunate part is the other big chunk of that. If you took the 80-20 rule, 20% that represents 80% of your business, that 20% is those engineers, the production floor, and that and that director level because they'll represent 80% of your success. If you're spending 80% of your time just with the procurement group, they're just looking at you like, yeah, great, you brought us a solution. Now I'm going to go price you out because there's no relationship value of what you've done on the floor with engineering and at a management level. But if you have them on your team, they can tell procurement, hey, you know, we have been working with X distributor and they have brought this value and they showed us, they demoed, they gave us this, they did all this. So it's not a one-legged stool. And that would be the advantage. You know what, Paul, I was just listening to that. That's an excellent point. And I think that for our listeners, that's why as small business people, I personally think you really have to partner with your manufacturers and your Fortune 100 company. Because, Paul, if you're a small business, you only have so many people budget-wise in the field. So if you have to have a budget where you have to reach purchasing and engineering and director level, and never mind reaching them, sometimes we just, as small businesses, we don't just even have access to that director level because you work for a Fortune 100 company, there's a reputation of that company, previous people have called on that account, so there's a familiarity with that company. 
company, whereas a small business, a big a shipyard, let's say they've never heard of you before, and you may reach a purchasing person, but to get to director level is very, very difficult. And that's why for our listeners, don't you agree, Paul, or let me hear your thoughts. I think it's important that you partner with big company or Fortune 100 company, if you can, to reach that uh, second tier. And quite frankly, engineers at a Fortune 100 company don't want to spend time in purchasing. So if a small business can spend time in purchasing and your Fortune 100 partner can spend time at the director level, isn't that an excellent team? Yeah, and to your point, that's kind of where I was going to next is that you learn how to network and then you have to have an advantage there because if the networks aren't connecting the dots and you're just opening the door to go into buyers and purchasing people only, that is what 99.9% of all people in a service distribution market does, especially in the industrial world. So if you look at yourself, and one of the biggest points I'm going to make that I think distinguishes the small guy from the big guy is the ability to get to the right people quicker, more limber, feet on the street, smart street talk, where they can get those key people and not just look at it as, oh, I met them, but look at it as, how do I show value to them? How you show value is by working with, in in the point of Mayhole, working with a a Fortune 100 company that may have the brand representation and you leverage that partnership together, but you don't stop there. You get to know them. And I know working with you, Mayhole, you've done an outstanding job in the networking category. In fact, the ladies and gentlemen in the audience here, we call him the king of king of networking. And the reason I call him the king of kings is he really does get to the right people and the right audience. And he uses that, whether it's through sports analogies, common interests, wearing a Jets hard hat in the, in the middle of a San Diego Charger shipyard, to attending meetings very, very super early that the average distributor wouldn't even be in the door. And yet, the, you know, the one and the only, the aforementioned Mayhole chef is there. Of sitting there in front of executives. And, the, and and that's perfect examples of how you distinguish yourself differently than the common distributor that's not going to make that effort, not going to show up for those meetings, is just going to try to get to procurement and say, I've got a better price than the other person. Well, if that's what you stay on, if that's what you put the sword on, you're going to die by that sword too, because it's if you can leave with just price and that is your value story, you can die on price just as quick. So keep that in mind, audience that it's all about your value, not just your price. Price is just one piece of the puzzle, along with the other pieces I mentioned around networking. So you show different value to different levels of the organization. That's a great point. Paul, in the uh, last remaining time left, I've got another question here as we wrap this up uh, in our first podcast. Again, our podcast on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. I'm so happy to have Paul downtown. Uh, Paul, how can small businesses uh, survive in a in today's environment. I mean, when I look at it from my point of view, and we'll, you know, go into this in future podcasts in detail, and we'd love to have you back, Paul, too. But uh, when I look at it, I say, these big guys are getting bigger, and these smaller guys are really having trouble surviving. And that's what I'm, that's what we're here to do is help small businesses. So tell a small business owner how to survive in a big business environment, Paul. 
You know, that's a great question. I think we've kind of hit on some of the different factors you bring as a brand in your small business area. You know, as far as the networking piece we talked about, we talked about leveraging your, your big companies to be able to get into some of these other companies and leveraging different levels of the organization. But I think that the distinguishing factor between you and other small business organizations is what value are you really bringing? Are you looking for need or are you just trying to sell what you got and you don't care about the, the future of new needs. What I mean by that is if, if somebody says, I need a different package design around this product, I don't want to buy a gallon of it. I want to buy a quart or I want to buy what's called SIM kits in the aerospace business. Do you offer that? And I think by distinguishing yourself is that you go, yes, I do offer that and I will offer. How many do you need? Then they're looking at you like, well, you're really listening to me because I told you I didn't want a gallon of this product and you're going to make it to the exact size I want. That's a distinguishable difference from the average Joe that's going out and selling what's on the shelf. And the reason it's much harder environment today is that it's easier to sell, obviously, what you have on your shelf because that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years from a distribution network standpoint. But in today's environment, because of the competitive landscape and everybody's making single-digit margins, you got to be able to distinguish yourself with a different value story. And that is really just listening to your customers' needs. And if you're listening closely, you're not talking. That's why you got two ears versus one mouth. And you're really listening. You're going to find the, the keys to success with what they're asking for rather than you just selling what you have. That make any sense, Manuel? It does, Paul. And I just want to say, Paul, that's a great point. And I want to thank you today on behalf of smallbusinesshorsepower.com and our listeners for having you on our first podcast. It's something that I'll always remember. You've been a great friend, a great colleague over the last 10 plus years. And uh, I'm just so honored to have you on our first podcast. So again, I want to thank Paul. Paul, let me say it one more time, downtown Packer fan, Paul Brown, for having us on today's podcast. Paul, thank you very much. No, thank you, Mayo. I appreciate being the, and, and quite an honor to be on the smallbusinesshorsepower.com first podcast. I can't thank you enough, Mayo. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to the future. If I get back invited, I look at it as an honor, and I wish you the very best with your new uh, podcast launch. I know it's going to do quite well for your audience, and it's going to be a lot of good information for them because you're going to get a lot of good people on your show. So thank you, Mayo. Appreciate the time. I know you're a Jets fan, and you're, you're, you're ready for your your new drafts to see what they look like and we hope that they will be playing uh, coming up here in the season for for 2020 thanks paul thank you very much